Hi, and welcome to the January 21st episode of Enjoying the Bible Podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida, and my desire in this podcast is to help you grow in your understanding and enjoyment of God's Word so you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you that in these chapters that we're going to look at this morning, there is so much content, uh, so much that we've got to look at, um, so we need to get going. Uh, The readings for today, and hopefully you've already read this, is Exodus chapters 1 through 3 and Matthew chapter 14. Once again, that's Exodus 1, 2, and 3 and Matthew chapter 14. I hope you're ready. Let's get going. Okay, Exodus chapter 1, let's get right into this. Uh, This chapter begins with the patriarchs, those men who would be the fathers of the the 12 tribes of Israel. We realize then that over time the Israelites are being prolific, they're having babies, and uh, they're growing into a great nation. And, And a lot of time, we don't know how much time, but a lot of time passes. Then, in verses 8 through 14, uh, king of Egypt comes to realize that the Israelites within his borders are now, he perceives them to be a threat. Uh, He sees that if they were to ever go to war uh, with any country outside of Egypt's borders, that they could end up fighting that war on two fronts, one with the enemy that they went to attack, and the other with the Israelites rising up even within Egypt. And he said, we can't have this. He put them to slave labor. All of the Israelites now are enslaved, and we are told that they were used to build at least uh, two supply cities in Egypt. And then in verses 15 through the end, we realize that uh, Pharaoh determines to do even something else. And uh, this is the way that he could just shut down the Israelite growth. And it was this way. He uh, told them... He told the uh, Hebrew midwives that when they went to a birth, when they went to one of the Israelite women who was giving birth, that they were to observe, and whenever they noticed, uh, by looking at uh, the anatomy, when they noticed that it was a baby boy being born, they were immediately to kill it. Because after all, you have a bunch of girls, no boys, you don't have any kids uh, when they grow up. And uh, so this is what he had determined to do. But this is where the problem comes in. This is where the problem comes in. The problem is this. One, it is an immoral law that the government demanded of these Israelite midwives. They were commanded to kill baby boys, and that is immoral on every level. And so when we look at verse 17, it says, The midwives, however, feared God. That didn't mean that they're scared of them. The word fear, when it shows up in reference to God, speaks of a reverential awe. You know, there is a fear, but it's it's more of an enjoyable fear, almost like, you know, when you're on the edge of the Grand Canyon or something like that, and you're just captivated by the immensity and the beauty. Yeah, there's a little bit of fear. Your heart rate's going, but man, you love every moment of it. That's the fear of God. However, it says, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. And so it says very clearly in verse 17, they disobeyed. They disobeyed the government. This is one of the issues. 
um, because this this brings into play a Christian's um, default position toward government. If you look at Romans 13, and I would encourage you that uh, go on and write that down, make a mental note, uh, and then you know at some point maybe today go to Romans 13. You may even want to hit pause and go there now. Go to Romans 13, and it gives us a very clear understanding about government. We understand in Romans 13 that God is the one who has initiated the whole concept of government. And not only that, we understand from that chapter that God is the one who installs the people in positions of government. Um, you say, oh, really? God installs even evil people into positions of government? Yes. I mean, as we go through the book of Exodus, you're going to realize, particularly the first half of Exodus, you're going to hear God say over and over, this is why I raised Pharaoh up to demonstrate my glory. God was in charge of Pharaoh who had commanded that the Hebrew midwives uh, were to kill the baby boys. And so we understand that not only has God initiated government, God also installs those people's people in position. So even in a representative republic like we live in here in America, where we vote on people into positions of local government and state and federal government, even to the highest offices. We have a choice, and yet in some way that we do not understand, God is fully in control of who gets into positions. And sometimes it's not a great choice that of somebody that ends up in office, but God puts them there for his own purposes. And so when we look to government, we read Romans 13, we read that our default position is to submit to government and to obey government. That's our default position. We are to pray for our government, pray for our governmental leaders so that we can live in peace. We are to be a blessing to all of those in position of leadership in whatever level of government it is. Christians are to be a blessing because we submit, we obey, we pray. Okay? But was it okay for the midwives to clearly disobey a direct command from their government. Yes, write down Acts chapter 5 verse 29. This is just one of the places that we could look at. In Acts 5 29, uh, in the verses before then, uh, Peter had been told, you are not to preach in the name of Jesus. You are not to talk about Jesus. And yet in Acts 5 29, uh, Peter says, we must obey God rather than people. We must obey God rather than people. And so a Christian is to, by default, submit, obey, and pray for those that are in government. But if ever our government calls us to do something that is in clear violation of God's moral laws, when, when what our government is telling us to do and what God tells us to do are no longer the same, then for the Christian... We do what God tells us to do, and we are prepared to take the consequences from a government whose laws we broke, whose laws we violated. And so when we see that these women were disobeying Pharaoh, yes, go for it, because the law he gave them was immoral. It was wrong. And so, yes, they disobeyed him, of course. Good. That's, that's a Christian thing to do um, whenever we see this. But the second thing is this. 
we realize that in verse 19, whenever Pharaoh said, hey, you, you too, you two, uh, you know, midwives, come over here. So the midwives came over and he said, what, what is this? Why, why are you letting the boys live? And listen to what they said in verse 19. They said, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So they were saying, you know, oh my goodness, Pharaoh, it's not our fault. These women are in slave labor, and so they are physically fit and tough. And so when it comes time for birth, they give birth. And, and they always have those babies before we even get there. They were lying. They were lying to Pharaoh. How do we know that? Because in verse 17 it says, because of their fear of God, they disobeyed. They let the boys live. And so what they were telling Pharaoh in verse 19 was a bold-faced lie. So was that appropriate? Is that appropriate? Were, were, was it okay that they lied to Pharaoh? Because after all, if they said, well, you know, um, we uh, fear God, and uh, so we chose to disobey you. And if they told the truth, you know what Pharaoh would have done? He would have taken them out of their positions, maybe killed them, and he would have put someone else in a position who would oversee the death of the baby boys. And yet, as they lied to Pharaoh, he appeared to believe it because he didn't he, he didn't replace them. And it appears that nothing happened as a result of that. So they told him a very creative lie that kept him from killing any of the baby boys. Was that appropriate? Well, I would also ask you in uh, Joshua chapter 2, when the two spies were sent by Joshua into Jericho, and they went into Rahab's house, and she put them up on the roof, and clearly she had come to believe that the God of the Israelites was the God of heaven, and it sure appears that she had already given her heart to the Lord um, as we listened to her testimony to these two spies after um, they had been hidden. But what did she tell the government? What did she tell the, the, the leaders of the city who came to her home and said, where are the two men, the two spies that came into your house? What did she tell them? She said, oh, oh they, they went out the city gate and they, they took off, but I'm sure that if you take off after them, you can catch them. She lied. And we're told that God blessed her. <laughs> So we've got two situations, one in Exodus 1, one in Joshua 2, where those that are in positions of governmental leadership are wanting to kill someone, and yet those that stood between them and the one to be killed and the government, the one that's standing between, tells a lie. So is it appropriate? to tell a lie. You know, I was in a class one time in a Bible study, actually was in a college class, and that same scenario was brought up. And uh, someone said, uh, I mean, the, the professor said, you know, what if you were in that situation? If you had some people that were in the house, what if you were in, um, you know, what if you were there in the hiding, you know, the, the, in, in, um, with uh, Corey Ten Boom, and you know she's got that hiding place up there in her room where she's hiding Jews. And what if the Nazis came and said, "Are there any Jews in this house? Would you tell the truth or would you lie?" And I remember one of the students said, "Well, you know, I cannot, I cannot lie. I would have to tell the truth." And I thought, "Oh my goodness, <laughs> oh my goodness." I know that lying is wrong. I know that lying is wrong. You shall not bear false witness is one of the Ten Commandments, but also one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not murder. It seems to me 
that in these rare scenarios, and I'm looking forward to the interaction y'all may give on the, uh, the Facebook group page under this post, but it seems to me that what we see is when there are these scenarios that only occur because we're in a broken, sinful world, this doesn't happen anywhere else. It doesn't happen in heaven. It happens here. That when we are put in a position where there is two conflicting laws of God because of the situation in which we find ourselves in, is somebody to be murdered or am I to lie? That it seems as if you appeal to the higher value. You appeal to the higher value. Is it worse to tell a lie or is it worse to have someone murdered? To me, it seems as if it's worse to have someone murdered. So if I need to misrepresent the truth in order to protect someone's life, then I will do it. Not because I'm choosing sin, but because I'm choosing the lesser evil. Or I'm choosing, really you could say, the greater good. And maybe there's some that are a little, you know, riled up at this point, but I would draw your attention to Matthew chapter 12. We looked at this passage not too long ago. In Matthew 12, Jesus was talking to some people about how, you know, they were, the Pharisees were so upset that he had violated the Sabbath. And listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. Jesus was justifying why it was okay to violate the Sabbath and to heal on the Sabbath because he said acts of mercy and kindness were okay on the Sabbath. You can break the Sabbath if you're doing something good for people and helping them out. But he also mentions this. Verse 3. Matthew 12, 3. He said to them, haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? He said, haven't you read the Old Testament where David and his men, they were fleeing, they were starving, they were hungry? Verse 4, how he entered the house of God, it was the tabernacle, and they ate the bread of the presence. This was very special bread that only the priests could consume. He said, they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests. And then he moves on to another topic. But what Jesus is doing here is he is placing two values. One, don't eat the bread of the presence. That's a law. But two, people are in need. David and his men were hungry. And so even though Jesus acknowledged that eating the bread of the presence was ordinarily unlawful for anybody else to eat, for David to eat, it sure seems as you read that text that Jesus is inferring that it was okay for them to eat it because they were hungry. I want you to see that the law of God is not something that we can toy around with. It's not something we can manipulate. It requires clear thinking. But I do believe that when we look at the instance in Exodus 1, the midwives lying and disobeying the government, I believe that they were choosing the greater good and they were obeying the God obeying their God, choosing to do what was in the best interest of those that they were responsible for, those little baby boys. And so even though ordinarily what they did would have been wrong, I don't believe that it was necessarily wrong in this instance. So there you go. I'm looking forward to your comments uh, on the Facebook page. Let's go on and jump to the next chapter.
Okay, let's jump into Exodus 2. Now, for the sake of time, let, let me just kind of hit some points fairly quickly. One is that uh, in verses 1 through 10, uh, Moses is born. He's placed in a basket. He's uh, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And then in verse 11, he kills an Egyptian, or at least that's where it begins, 11 through 15. I want you to know that if, uh, you know, just, just a note to self, Moses lived 120 years. 120 years. And it is easily divided into three segments, Moses' life is. 40 years he was in Egypt. 40 years he was in the wilderness tending sheep. 40 years he was leading the Israelites through the wilderness. Okay, so it's 40, 40, 40. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep, and then 40 years he is uh, leading the Israelites through that same wilderness. And so whenever we get to verses 11 through 15 and he kills the Egyptian, he's probably 39, 40 years old, somewhere right around that time. And I would assume that as soon as that happens, he takes off. Uh, so he's about 40 years old. Um, and Hebrews 11.25 tells us that Moses did this because he was aligning with the Jews. He was aligning with the Hebrews. Um, and so this may explain why Pharaoh was so angry with his adopted grandson that he was willing to kill him is because maybe in his mind he never was excited about his daughter adopting a Hebrew boy anyway. And he never saw any good coming out of this. And then when he noticed that Moses was beginning to look and act like a cultural Hebrew, and then he kills an Egyptian to protect a Hebrew, this is probably the last straw with Pharaoh. He wanted to kill Moses. Moses takes off. Now, a couple of points I just want to address uh, is uh, it says that he went to Midian. Now, where is Midian? If you were to open up your Bible uh, in, in the very back, almost certainly, you know, you've got some maps back there. Midian is in northwest Arabia, or now northwest Saudi Arabia. Midian is the area that is northwest of Saudi Arabia. Midian is where Mount Sinai is. And so we're going to get into that uh, in, I believe it's the next chapter that we're going to get into. That, yes, we're going to look at that at the next chapter, but I just want you to know that he did not go to the Sinai Peninsula, that little V-shaped, that's actually not little, but that V-shaped landmass where they say that's where Mount Sinai is. No, he went to Midian. If you look at your maps, you realize Midian is not there. It is in Arabia. And uh, one final thing, verse 24, after, you know, Moses gets married, uh, has a kid, but while he's doing that, Israel is groaning. But in verse 24, it says, God remembered. And once again, I think I've addressed this before, but when you see God remembered, do not think, oh, God must have forgotten, and then he remembered. Because if I say, oh, I just remembered something, that means that I'd forgotten it beforehand. That implies a weakness. When it says God remembered, it does not mean that God had previously forgotten. When you see, and God remembered, all that means is God's about ready to do something cool. All of a sudden, it's time. It's time for God to move on one thing, on an event, with the Israelites, with Moses, with whatever. And when it says God remembered, that just means that God's about to do something big. And so that sets us up for the next chapter.
Okay, so now we're at Exodus 3. Now there's there's a few things that I want us to, to look at. Exodus 3, look at verse 1. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Uh, he'd led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, I want you to know, and you can do your own study to confirm this, but I'm telling you what I'm about to say is, is of course, truth. I'm not going to lie to you intentionally, but Horeb is Sinai. It's the same thing. It's a different different name for the same mountain. And so when you see Mount Horeb, it's also Mount Sinai. And so the mountain of God is Mount Sinai. That's where Moses got the uh, Ten Commandments there in Exodus chapter 20, right? Mount Sinai. And so when we see that he left and went to Mount Horeb, it says that he's there on the far side of the wilderness in Midian at Mount Sinai, at Mount Horeb. So where is this mountain? Now let me move over to Galatians chapter 4, verse 25, because did you know that the New Testament tells us where Mount Sinai is. I said in the last chapter that Mount Sinai is not in that Sinai Peninsula. Where do I get that? Well, just listen. Galatians chapter 4, verse 25. Um, and just briefly, uh, Paul is being uh, somewhat allegorical in this text. He's referring to Sarah as the, the mom of those who are free and grace-receiving, and Hagar represents those who are under the law. And so that's how we're to understand the beginning of verse 25 when Paul says, Galatians 4.25, Now Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia. Hagar represents the mountain of the law, right? And so people that are following the law, not living in grace, Hagar represents Mount Sinai. And where is Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai in Arabia. It clearly says it's in Arabia. Arabia is now called Saudi Arabia. And so I do not believe that Mount Sinai, and there are many archaeologists, many Bible scholars that do not believe that uh, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, has been properly identified. We could go into that, but uh, you know I'm not going to do that. I just want you to to pique your interest so that you can be looking for clues and things. And um, but I'm just telling you that I believe Mount Sinai is in Midian or what used to be Midian in northwest Saudi Arabia. Um, also, when you get to verse 2, uh, it talks about the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush, right? The burning bush. It doesn't say an angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord. Once again, I'm hitting a point that we've already talked about. When it says the angel of the Lord, not a it's some, somebody specific, the angel of the Lord. But also remember the word angel in Hebrew and in Greek, in the Old Testament and in the New, it really means messenger. It doesn't necessarily have to mean those that have the wings and fly and they're the created beings. When it says the angel of the Lord, it really should be translated the messenger of the Lord. 
Well, I'm telling you that if you look at this text and you read through this text, it is God that is speaking from the bush. And so when it says, not the Lord, but the messenger of the Lord, the one sent by the Father, is speaking out of the bush, and he is God, who are we talking about? It's Jesus. I'm telling you, Jesus is all over the Old Testament. If you were to go to the end of Luke, and I mentioned this before too, I just want to hammer these truths home. If you go to the end of Luke, and you go to the day of the resurrection, that Jesus has risen from the dead and he catches up to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says that he on their road, as they were traveling, he began, Jesus began with Moses and all of the prophets. Moses means the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and all of the prophets just means the rest of the Old Testament. He began with Moses and all the prophets to explain all of the things concerning himself. I'm telling you, Jesus is all over. Not only does he show up, but he's alluded to. He's foreshadowed. There's so many things in the Old Testament. And I'm telling you, I can't wait to get to the Passover here in a few days and show you how that is a beautiful picture of Jesus and salvation. But let's get back to Exodus 3. The angel of the Lord, I believe that's Jesus. In verse 5, the angel of the Lord says, or the messenger of the Lord says, Jesus isn't an angel, he's a messenger, one sent by God. In verse 5, he says, remove your sandals. You're on holy ground. Why? Why Why remove your sandals? I believe, I think, that what that is a sign of is that Moses was to take off his sandals and then his clay feet, right? Because we're made from clay. Look at Genesis 2, and we go back to dust just look at the what happens as the body deteriorates and it goes back to the dust from which it came. And so Moses, with his clay, dusty feet, was touching the clay, dusty ground. I think when he took his shoes off, God was saying, I want you to realize that before me, the God of all creation, the one that's speaking to you out of this burning bush, the one that is about to send you on an incredible assignment, Moses, I want you to know that without me, you're nothing. Take your sandals off. Remind yourself that you are just dirt. And so whenever we hear God say that, we may immediately think, oh, God just likes us feeling small. Well, I'm telling you, we love feeling small in front of something so big. Go out tonight, and if it's a beautiful night sky and there are no clouds and you're able to look up at the stars, if you can just try to grasp the immensity of it out there and look and try to figure out how far away those things are, then what it'll do is it will create a sense of uh, smallness within you. You will feel so small, but you will enjoy it. And so that's what God's doing. He is calling Moses to reflect on his smallness before God, but even as he did that, that created even greater joy in the presence of God. Well, we see in verses 6 through 15 that God identifies himself and sends Moses off. But I want to highlight um, in verse 14, and this is going to be the last comment we make on this chapter. In verse 14, God actually gives his name. He doesn't just give his title. He gives his name. Uh, verse 14, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And this is God's name. I am. Um, 
just for reference, just so that you've got this, is a big word, but this is called by uh, scholars, called by, you know, New Old Testament scholars. This is called the Tetragrammaton. Um, tetragrammaton. And what that is, is it's set, it, it, it refers to this as the four consonants. The four consonants. Um, this is why we don't know if the way you say God's name is Yahweh or Jehovah, or maybe there's something else because there were only four consonants to God's name and there were no vowel points. There were no vowels in there. And it was such a holy name that the, the, the ancients never even said it. They never even said it. And so when God said, I am that I am, this is the being verb, but this is also God's name. God is the all-existing one. He is, as it were, the life source. Uh, not just eternal life, but living life. There would be no life if it were not for God. God is, I am that I am. I am the, the existing one, and every bit of life comes from Him. Comes from Him. There's so much more that could be said about that, but God gives us His name, and in giving us His name, tells us much about His character. Okay, so we're at our final chapter for today, Matthew 14, and uh, let me just hit on a couple of points here. One, verses 3 through 4, we have the story of John the Baptist pointing his finger um, at Herod and saying that it was not lawful for him to have his brother's wife. What do we learn from this? We understand that it is appropriate. There are, in fact, it's not just appropriate. Sometimes it is necessary for Christians, for people who love truth and love people and want a society where truth prevails and people are able to flourish. There comes a time whenever Christians must stand up and point out the evils in society, point out the evils even in government, just as John the Baptist did. It got him in prison, it got his head taken off, and yet he spoke truth. He wasn't being a Pharisee looking down his nose. He knew that this was wrong, and if the leader did this, it would trickle down and it would uh, distort uh, the notions of morality among all of those that were under this kind of leadership. And so when we look at this, we understand that sometimes it's not just appropriate, it's necessary for us to speak against the evils in society. Um, we see through the uh, rest of the chapter that Jesus' humanity was showing up. As he heard about John the Baptist, he wanted to get away. He just wanted to get away. And yet, uh, his, in, his quiet time was interrupted. It was called, um, it, it was made short. He fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And then he sent the disciples away so that he could be by himself again on the mountain just to get away. Friend, I want you to realize as you're reading through the Gospels, when you look at Jesus, he is fully God. Always has been, always will be. He is fully God. And yet, as he was here on planet earth, he lived it as fully man, never sinning, not once, but he lived it as fully man so he could take back what the first Adam lost. And so when we see him getting away, we feel 
the humanity of Jesus there as he was just grieving over the loss of someone so special and as he just wanted to get away and process and think and pray and just be with his father. And so look, when you're reading about Jesus, see him as fully man. He's fully God, but see him as fully man. Then we understand in verses 24 through 33, Jesus is walking on the water and Peter uh, asks to come to him. Peter steps out because Jesus allows it. For a time, Peter's walking on the water and then begins to sink. And Jesus, um, instead of saying, hey, you know, you did a great job for that little bit, he says, you know, you have little faith. Once again, when you see the word faith in Scripture, it does include right thinking but but it's but faith biblical faith is is the third step as well it's not just knowledge it's not just believing the right thing but biblical faith is absolutely the third step and the third action is trust where where are you peter you know why didn't you trust me that's what it is when we see faith we may hear jesus saying oh you know if you just have faith and you just have that mind strength and you could walk on the water when we see faith we may come to that conclusion but really i think it could be better translated oh you have little trust you know the 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 the, the power is not in our minds the power is in the God that we rest our faith upon, that we trust. And that's how we are to live, trusting Jesus, trusting Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and uh, I'm, right now I'm just thinking of that old hymn, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Lord Jesus, help me to trust you. Not just to exercise faith and believe certain things, to know truth by spending time in your word and learning from life as you're teaching me lessons there. and not just to believe right things, but help me, Lord, to go to that third step and trust you, to live in trust. And Father, I know that I'll be trusting whenever my spirit is resting in you. Father, help me in this. Oh, for grace, I need your grace. Oh, for grace to trust you more. This is my desire, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come to the end of another episode, and I hope you've enjoyed our time together. If you're enjoying this, if this podcast or these episodes are really helping you and you think it could be beneficial to someone else, by all means, share it with others. Tell them about this. Um, send them a link to the to the Spotify or Anchor uh, podcast, or maybe invite them to the um Facebook uh, group page. Um, however, just share with them how it is that this has been a blessing to you and you want it to be a blessing to them. Friends, I'm telling you, I just, I love God's Word. I love studying it. I love help growing not only in my own knowledge and enjoyment, but also sharing that with others because I'm broken over the fact that so many people that claim to be Christians don't know their Bibles and I want to help in some small way. So if you want to join me in, in accomplishing that, then by all 
means feel free to share this with others. I'm looking forward to meeting with you again tomorrow. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.